to A Dog Called Diversity, a podcast from the Culture Ministry, where we explore the themes of diversity, equity and inclusion through sharing stories of personal and powerful lived experiences, including how people have found their feet and developed their career in diversity and inclusion. We are so glad you are listening in. And if you need some help or support with your diversity and inclusion work, go to www.theculture-ministry.com for more information. In this episode, Lisa Mulligan speaks with Tricia Montalvo-Tim, former general counsel, board member, and most recently, the author of her very own book, Embrace the Power of You. Listen in as Tricia shares her journey, detailing her struggle to balance motherhood, a demanding career, and being her authentic self within a corporate environment that didn't always understand her unique background. This discussion also takes a deeper look at the effects of media representation on identity, a topic that rings close to home for Tricia, along with the continuous pressure women of color face improving their worth in their careers. Her story is a reminder of the power of authenticity, the need for representation, and the importance of promoting messages of belonging. Get ready to be inspired by Trisha's resilience, determination, and her commitment to empowering authenticity in the workplace. Here's your host, Lisa Mulligan. Welcome to A Dog Called Diversity. This week, I have such a lovely guest, someone who has achieved so much, and I'm so looking forward to sharing her story with you. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Trisha. Now, let me let me say your full name. So it's Trisha okay. Montalvo Tim. Welcome. How are you today? Oh, thank you. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast, Daily So, no problem. So I am based in Auckland, New Zealand. Where are you mm-hmm. joining from today? I am from the Bay Area of California, so near um, San- I'm near Santa Cruz, California, so uh, slightly on the coast. Nice. That's such yeah. a beautiful part of the world. It is. I love yeah. it. We're kind of nestled here in the redwoods by the coast, so it can't can't get too much better. It's nice. Well, as with all of my guests, I usually ask you to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and mm-hmm. maybe a bit about, you know, where you grew up and some of the influences you had on your life growing up. Yeah, happy to. Uh so uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, down in Southern California, uh, to two immigrants. Uh, my mother is from El Salvador and my father is from Ecuador. And they raised us, uh, in LA until I was around six years old. Uh, and they moved us out of LA actually into a, a, a suburb about 30 miles away, um, because they wanted, uh, a better life and a better education for us. So they wanted us out of the city into something that they thought was, um, a little bit, uh, with a little bit more resources and stability. Um, but I all of a sudden found myself as one of the few Latinas in a predominantly white community. And as I look back and reflect on sort of my life and career, I think that was a, um, a pivotal moment um, because I all of a sudden, uh, started noticing the differences between my family and my, and everyone else around me. Um, you know, I spoke Spanish at home. Everybody else spoke English. We would have home cooked meals of arroz con pollo, frijoles, tamales, 
my friends would have pizza and hamburgers <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, celebrated different uh, celebrations. I celebrate my quinceanera um, in the U.S. We celebrate Sweet 16. So, you know, it was very, you know, just it, it became very um, apparent to me that I was different. And my parents, uh, they suffered from discrimination themselves at thick Spanish accents and they didn't want me to go through the same experience. So they encouraged me, like many of their generation, to assimilate, blend in, speak English, um, you know, don't rock the boat. That was, you know, work hard, head down. And that's a very common story for many um, uh, immigrants in this country and in the workplace and, and very yeah. familiar to um, Latinos and Latinas in the workplace. Uh, so... Yeah, you know, so I grew up there, went to, you know, through uh, school, high school and college and law school and, um, and blended in and, and tried, you know, assimilated as much as I could. Uh, I had a fantastic career, but I would say that, um, throughout my career, I kept downplaying kind of where I was from, from my ethnicity, uh, being a working mother. Um, and I learned eventually over, it took me a while, Lisa, it took me two decades <laughs> to figure out that that was not the road to success that while it can work in the short term um it really takes an emotional toll on on someone's sense of of well-being uh continuing to do that uh, day in and day out yeah what were some of the things that you you did to assimilate yeah so for my ethnicity some things i did was um you know my hair can get very curly and uh i didn't you know, for me, my thought of a professional corporate attorney was straight hair. So I would, you know, blow dry and straighten my hair every morning. It took me an hour uh, to do that. Um, I thought wearing hoop earrings wasn't professional. It's a very common jewelry piece um, in our culture. So I stopped wearing my hoop earrings. Um, I didn't speak Spanish, uh, anywhere, uh, in the workplace with, you know, if I, I saw the janitor, I wouldn't, you know, uh, speak Spanish. I wouldn't talk about my relatives in Ecuador. I had like 60 relatives and cousins in Ecuador. I, I didn't speak of them. So I just, I just kept that part of my life and identity sort of separate. And as a working mother, you know, I were, when I had my, my two daughters, uh, that particular company was male dominated. Uh, pretty toxic, to be honest. And uh, they didn't uh, really embrace uh, or provide support for working mothers. When, for example, when I told my boss, I was nervous, I knew it would not be well received. And but when I told my boss, I couldn't hide it anymore. You know, I, I'm, I'm pregnant. Uh, his response to me was, how could you do this to me? I've seen this movie. I know how it ends. And he walked away. Yes. So, you know, coming back from that, uh, after three months of maternity leave, which is what we get in the U.S., uh, I was very scared to bring that part of my life, uh, into yeah. the workplace. And, uh, my daughter, she was, uh, I was nursing her and she wouldn't take the bottle. So I didn't know what to do because I had to be in the office all day, every day. And, you know, it was before Zoom and part time and all the flexibility we might have now. Uh, and, um, so I would secretly go down to the parking garage where my husband would bring my baby every three hours to nurse her because I didn't know another way to, you know, to survive and to do it. And so, you know, there's so many stories like that of just sort of hiding and downplaying and, 
you know, parenting, especially newborns and toddlers is uh, incredibly challenging. And to pretend that that isn't happening in your life uh, is, a, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't provide the connection that people need or want in a workplace. Um, so, you know, that's why I encourage others now to, you know, we all go through life events, whether it's, you know, having a child, um, taking care of a family member, grieving a lost one, infertility, miscarriages. Um, all, there's so many things that we go through in life. Yeah. And, you know, keeping that part of ourselves hidden um, is really, really difficult. Yeah. Look, I've, I so resonate with your story about being a working mom and needing to breastfeed or needing to express milk. I yes. used to do that um, and there were just no facilities. Like I had to be in yeah. a storeroom with no lock on the door and no, mm. like just no facilities that were appropriate. Right. And um, so, yeah, as you were talking, I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, been there, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like it's not that long ago. No, it's not. It's not that and long ago. We, yeah, I didn't have a nursing room in my no. office either. So, yeah. No. Your parents must have been so proud of you going to law school and yeah. achieving some of the things that you've achieved. Like, what, what has that meant for them coming as immigrants? Oh, they are. They are very proud of me. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, um, it's their legacy. You know, I think they, um, come from humble beginnings and my father was born in a tiny little remote town called Rio Bamba in Ecuador. And, um, to go from that to, you know, a, a corporate executive and board director in the U S I mean, it's like unimaginable. So, yeah. um, they're, they're quite proud that their sacrifices and their hard work, um, mattered. You know, and that um, I was able to take that and and take their work ethic. Um, I needed, believe me, I needed the the work ethic and the resilience that I saw in them to make it uh, because it was incredibly challenging. It hit a lot of roadblocks, and um, and I think that resilience muscle uh, really got me through. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about like was was there a moment that you said, I'm not going to assimilate anymore. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to have my hair curly and I'm going to wear the earrings that I want to wear, right? And um, look, I, I know how important those things are. It was like, I guess the question is, was there a moment or has it been a gradual change throughout your career that you've realized I want to show up as me and represent yeah. my culture? It's been a gradual change. I think part of the reason is there are so many external messages uh, that come, that came my way, that come to, in other people's ways, people who are different, that say that you don't belong here. You don't belong in the room. You're different. You're weird. You're, you know, whatever those messages might be. You don't see yourself in media. You don't see yourself represented um, as a CEO or as a leader. You see you're represented as a nanny or a housekeeper. And so you create these fears um, around uh, potential backlash or not being accepted. Um, and so all of those external messages that come in, you start believing them, you start internalizing them. And so to really unpack decades and decades of, you know, whether it's media or comments or microaggressions, all of these things 
Um, it takes a lot of time depending on how much, you know, armor you put up, how much, um, you know, so, so much of the strategies you've used to survive, um, to let go of that, um, is requires a lot of vulnerability and a lot of courage. And that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, for me, it took years, um, you know, small little steps at a time of really being more vulnerable and honest and, in. Uh, situations or in, in places that I felt safe, whether, whether it was with friends or family or colleagues. Um, and that built up more courage to sort of show up more and more of myself. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I, I've got two questions. I'm not sure which one to ask first. How, okay. I'll, I'll go with this one. There's a documentary on Netflix, uh, about, uh, Jessica Lope, uh, not Jessica, Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez, Lopez. <laughs> uh, per- performing at the Super Bowl, which is mm-hmm. obviously a massive, massive deal. And it was a massive deal because she was the first uh, Latino to do that. Mm-hmm. But I remember in the documentary her being frustrated that she wasn't allowed to headline the Super Bowl that year alone. We had to have Shakira mm-hmm. as well, so we had two mm-hmm. Latino women. Mm-hmm. Um and I thought that was such an interesting observation that we have these incredible role models for mm-hmm. Latino women. And please, mm-hmm. am I saying that correctly? Because I know Latino, Latina, there's different meanings. So what would be the correct word to use? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking <laughs> because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's different for everybody. So, okay. uh, so for, for, for women, uh, Latina is, is Latina. what I use. Uh, okay. but it, 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 you know, Latino, uh, historically has been used to, uh, apply to both, uh, to all genders. All genders. Um, yeah. but, uh, but, uh, it's changed in the recent times where, um, we won't, you know, there are some that want to make it more gender neutral. And so that's where Latinx has come in or Latin yeah. has come in. Um, so there, is, I, I just say there is no right answer. It really depends, um, on what the person feels most comfortable with. And for me, Latina, uh, is feels comfortable to me. And also Latino, when you reference the whole community feels comfortable to me, but okay. recognize and acknowledge that it's not the same for everyone. Great. Thank you. Sorry, yeah, it's a complicated I, answer. <laughs> no, it is. And I, and I knew it was a bit complicated because I'd worked on a project, uh, in the US where we were measuring within our company, uh, the different race and ethnicities. And during that project, the external consultant I was working with had started to change the language. And so I just wanted to ask. So <laughs> I guess the question is, you know, there are some high profile Latina women, particularly in the US, who are doing incredible things. So you do have mm-hmm. some role models. You know, you do have a bit of that, you know, I can see so I can be, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some actresses as well who've been very successful. Um, but you also have this tension around, well, we, we, we can't promote them too much. We can't headline them just one at the Super Bowl. So I wondered how that sits with you. Is the, the role model, is that a good thing? But then there's still some discrimination, I guess, in how role models are used yeah. in the media. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think we still, we do have, um, definitely some 
role models with big stars like Jennifer Lopez um, and Shakira, there's still, you know, there is that bias of the sexy Latina. So, you know, yeah. we have to sort of try to dispel that a bit in the workplace, which is um, a challenge. Uh, but I did watch that documentary. I thought it was fantastic. And, you know, I wasn't surprised to hear that, you know, she was asked to co-headline, you know, the Super Bowl. I mean, that is, yeah. um, I think, indicative of how um, women and women of color have to continuously prove themselves. Um, usually men are rewarded for their vision um, and and for their potential, um, where women have to prove and earn their spot. And that creates um, so many, uh, you know, different challenges for women as they progress, you know, in all aspects of, of their careers. Yeah. So then the second question I wanted to ask about, and I know you're on a number of boards, which is uh, such an important place to be um, and an important for organisations to have diversity on their boards. One of the things you know, when I've looked at companies I want to work with or, you know, be employed by and the recruiter comes to you and and says, oh, they're really committed to diversity, Lisa, and I go look at their board makeup and I go look at their executive team and, you know, when they're 80% white men, I'm like, mm-hmm. or, or one I looked at, the whole board was white men. I'm like, no, you're not serious. <laughs> <laughs> what have you noticed that you bring to boards that, that really adds to what the organization is trying to achieve? Oh, I think I add a lot. Um, I just yeah. have a different perspective on a number of different things. And so in my particular board seats, um, I think I bring the perspective um, as a woman and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, thinking about uh, workplace policies like flex time and parental leave and childcare and other policies that may impact women um, <laughs> in different ways that they impact men. And so bringing that voice, um, I remember even before the board seat, when I was at my last company, Looker was when the pandemic hit and being able to voice that people are not doing okay at home right now. The kids are at home and how can they, you know, they're struggling trying to, you know, work and, you know, teach their kids and, that voice um, mattered uh, as we thought about having some empathy for our employees going through a really difficult time. Um, I bring a perspective as a Latina and the huge economic opportunity that is being missed out, uh, particularly in the U.S., where, you know, one in five are Latino. In California, 40 percent of the population is Latino. And yet, you know, we're less than two percent oh. on the board and leadership. And so we're missing out on, you know, real economic opportunity, um, you know, from that marketplace. So how can we, you know, think about potential market opportunities um, in, you know, from a from a company and board perspective? Uh, and, you know, and just like I think also being uh, what I call an other, somebody who, you know, never, you know, struggled belonging, struggled with fitting in and. Um, I think because of it, I have empathy for others that struggle and, and, and have a hard time fit, fitting in. And, um, and so I bring, I think empathy when we talk about challenging, um, you know, when we think about the strategy and how we want to look at things like how, how is that going to impact the workplace? How I truly believe we are at a pivotal moment in time with organizations. Um, I think post pandemic, people are rethinking. 
what they want out of their life. They want purpose um, and they're unwilling to kind of go back to the way things were. And we have a next generation and my daughter's 20. I, so I can see it firsthand. Um, <laughs> yeah. A next generation that um, wants to uh, show up in life and in the workplace differently. And I think as leaders, if we don't pivot um, and come and show up as empathetic leaders, uh, we're not going to create the type of engagement and retention um, that companies will need to succeed. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think about the challenges organizations are having at the moment, particularly finding talent. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was McKinsey who predicted the war for talent many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, and in some ways I think we're there and there's a sense of where have all the people gone? Like mm-hmm. we, we had employees and they <laughs> left us during the pandemic. But they're not rejoining, they're not necessarily rejoining the corporate world. They're not necessarily joining these big organizations because mm-hmm. of all the things you spoke about that where you don't have empathetic leaders and you're not thinking about what people need. And so mm-hmm. they're, they're going and doing other things like, yeah. and yeah, I, I find it extraordinary that organizations, some are not seeing that. I think it's very yeah, hard. It's- it's it's taking them some time, and I think you know as they continue to struggle to uh, attract and retain talent, uh, the the ones that'll succeed are the ones that'll be able to pivot. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You've had such a successful career, um, including being part of a team who sold a business. So that was the Looker. Mm-hmm. Yes, but yeah, which is. So incredible to be part of something like that. I mean, those experiences don't happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you doing now? What's what's your work now? What's your passion now? Uh, well, yes, I loved uh, my time at Looker, and that acquisition was um, was a wonderful transaction and experience. Uh, so from there, you know, we hit uh, COVID. <laughs> Uh, and in the midst of COVID, uh, I had someone reach out to me uh, about the idea of getting a group of 10 women together to support each other in writing, uh, books. Uh, she was a CEO of, uh, Hotwire and noticed the lack of the female voice in media. So, uh, so that's where I started my journey as an author and recently published my first book, Embrace the Power of You, Owning Your Identity at Work, um, which I released in March. Um, as you mentioned, I sit on corporate boards. Um, and the other area that I also am spending time in is, um, really, uh, supporting, uh, female entrepreneurs and particularly entrepreneurs of color. And so I've uh, done, I'm part of a limited partner in a couple of venture funds as well as an angel investor and do mentoring and advising and trying to, um, support support them with, uh, you know, the amazing technologies and ideas they're bringing to the world that, um, and they're just so sadly funded uh, less than 2%. I get let 2% seems to be the number less than 2% of, of women, um, get funding as, and it's even worse for women of color. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Tell me more about your book because a book, Firstly, people who write books, I think are super cool. Um, I, you know, I look up to you. I'd love to write a book one day. 
how did the idea of the book came? Because it's it's one thing to have someone come to you and say, we want more um, diverse voices, we want more women voices. It's a whole other thing to finish a book. So, you know, yes. how, how did all of that come about? Yeah. Well, thank you. Yes, a book is incredibly <laughs> hard to do and finish. Um, you know, the idea, well, I will say the seeds were planted uh, while I was still at Looker. They, I, we had started the DEI program there. And as part of the program, uh, we had, um, a, um, some, a program called the, the storyteller program where from time to time we would, um, just tell our stories to each other and learn from each other. And it was Hispanic Heritage Month and, um, the Latinx ERG asked if I would tell my story to, to our employees. Um, and that was the first time. I hadn't even realized, honestly, it was the first time someone had asked me to, you know, stand in front of my entire company, peers, employees, you know, managers, everybody and, and tell my story and be vulnerable. And, um, and I remember having a lot of fear going into that moment, but, um, but I did it anyways. And it was the impact of telling that story that I didn't anticipate. Um, people, um, not only were supportive, but particularly women of color and Latinas um, just came up to me and just said, thank you for telling your story. I've never seen anyone that looks like me in leadership. Um, your experiences are like my experiences and I never heard them in, you know, the corporate space. Um, I now think I can, you know, be the leader I want to be because I've heard your story. And so I just was like, taken back because I, I, I remember as a young person starting my career, how lonely it felt not to see anybody that looked like me, not to have any role model, not to, not to know or believe that I can do it. And what a disservice it was that now, you know, 25 years later, um, I wasn't a visible role model to those, the next generation, um, not to be the leader that I wish I saw. So that's when I decided, I remember coming home that night telling my husband, I, you know, like something happened to me today. That moment was so incredible. I don't, I don't know what it's going to be, but something changed today. And, um, you know, two, it was two years later where, um, you know, we had finished the acquisition. I was transitioning out of Looker and I got this email, um, from, from this woman that asked if I wanted to write a book. And so I was like, it literally felt like the universe because I just got an email <laughs> out of nowhere, Lisa, that just says, want to write a book. And I was in COVID. So I thought, sure, I can write a book, universe. <laughs> and so, uh, and so that's, you know, and I found an editor and, um, I didn't know what I was going to write about, but as I kept writing, you know, she was so fantastic of developing my story and like pulling out the things that were, you know, some of them were hard to sort of unpack. Um, but we're where really the, um, the, I think the gift of the story is. So. Yeah. Stories are the best. Yeah. Stories are the best. So what was, what was the purpose of your book then? What were you trying to achieve with it? Mm-hmm. Why should people read it? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the book is for anybody who feels like an other, who wants to belong, is trying to fit in, um, and is hiding or downplaying or changing a part of the, uh, themselves, uh, to try to meet the mold, uh, and, but doesn't realize that really just 
um, accepting who they are, believing um, when the value that they bring to the organization. Uh, and that's the real path to success, that owning your identity and showing up as your authentic self is actually what the world needs right now. And it tells my story. It's, it tells, you know, my whole sort of journey through that. Cause I think, as I mentioned before, it wasn't, you know, one aha moment. It took, you know, many moments, uh, to get to the other side of fears and struggles. Uh, but my purpose was to help the reader feel seen, give them strategies and tips along the way, um, and to get on the other side and have a new vision for themselves and, and their life. Yeah. Nice. It's so interesting because I have a lot of people on my podcast who who may have gone through a similar journey um, in trying to assimilate rather than showing up as, as who they are and who they want to be. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to them and say, you know, now that you are, you know, showing up as who you are, who you truly are, you know, how has life been? And Without a doubt, everyone says it's so much better. Opportunities mm-hmm. came to me because of who I am and who I'm, mm-hmm. you know, showing to the world. And I think, you know, that's been the biggest takeaway for me from this podcast is yeah. just what you said, like you've got to show up as who you are. You've got to show the world who you actually are and be authentic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's easy to say, I think I write in my book, like it, it's, it's, it's easy to say, Oh, just snap my fingers and I'm just going to show up authentic, you know, and, yeah. um, it's, it's hard to do if you, again, if all of these messages and belief systems are so ingrained in you. So, um, I think, but when you get on the other side of it and you show yeah. up and you're accepted, I mean, it's almost like you step into the, your next power, like where yes. you really can make a difference. And it's so, um, that's what my hope is for, for everyone. Where can people find your book and get in contact with you if they'd like to work with you, I guess? Yeah. So, uh, you can find me on my website, trishatim.com, T-R-I-C-I-A-T-I-M-M.com. Mm-hmm. I'm also on LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Uh, but yeah. And my book is uh, sold on Amazon, Barnes and Noble and li- literally <laughs> every, everywhere books are sold. You'll, you'll be able to find my book as well. And I'll put all those links in the show notes so that people can find you. Um, I guess one last question. What are you optimistic about now with either the work mm. you're doing or just generally in the world? I am super optimistic about our youth. Uh, you know, seeing how more inclusive and open-minded they are. Um, you know, they've gone through some hard times with the pandemic and they've built a resilient muscle that, um, you know, I think many of us, uh, you know, didn't have and, Um, And they are welcoming and purposeful and care about the world in um, some amazing ways. So uh, I'm really optimistic about them. I think that we can learn learn a lot from them. Yeah, I so agree. (laughs) I so Mm -hmm. agree. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your story, Trisha. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me and for doing this work and amplifying uh, people like me and these messages. At The Culture Ministry, we know how challenging and lonely it can be working in diversity and inclusion, and how progress is often slow. You might be just getting started in diversity and inclusion, or you might be on your way. 
The Culture Ministry is here to help you with your diversity and inclusion progress. Go to www.theculture-ministry.com to learn more. If you enjoyed this episode and maybe learned something, please share with your friends on social media. Give a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. This makes it easier for others to find a dog called diversity.